All right, praise the Lord that we serve a holy and a mighty God, and uh, without Him, and until we see Him in that light, it really is hard for our lives to be impacted the way that uh, they ought to be. As we look this morning to our text, and we uh, examine this from the standpoint of, uh, this is probably the most classic stewardship passage, but uh, oftentimes we just jump right in and really just kind of focus on the first couple of verses here. Uh, I believe as we've been ex- going through our journey of discipleship this year, as we look and understand that, uh, that you know, discipleship is not something, um, as I mentioned in prayer a while ago, it, that we can just move in and out of. I, I can't be a disciple of the Lord uh, on Sunday or on uh, Tuesday night or Wednesday night or Saturday morning and then not be a disciple at other times. If I'm a disciple, I'm a disciple. It doesn't matter whether I'm on vacation, uh, whether I'm at work, whether I'm at home, whether I'm uh, engaged with someone that I'm trying to share the message of Christ with. Uh, it is it is something that I have to understand uh, that God uh, wants from us at all times. Once these men were called and Jesus brought them out, they they stayed with him. And they never went back. They once they were commissioned and they were sent out and the church was founded, uh, there was there was no wavering. There was no moving. There was no uh, trying to go back. They were just simply committed to the to the power of Christ and to the job that he gave them to do. When we come here to first Corinthians chapter four, we find that Paul is dealing with the corruption at the church in Corinth. Now, the corruption of the church of Corinth is is not like you see mentioned in other passages later, uh, you know, where the, uh, the where we're warned about false teachers and things of that nature. The problem at Corinth is not a mob of false teachers or heresy preaching teachers coming in, though certainly there are some things that are being taught that are not right. The problem at the church of Corinth is their carnality. The wrong teaching here is based on carnality, whereas later on you see the warnings against the false teachers coming in. That they're, it, that's dealing more with people that have a, a sincere desire to learn, to commit to Christ. They're, they're not carnally minded, they're spiritually minded, but false teachers have come in and are leading them astray. Uh, at, at Corinth, you've just got carnality You've got carnality on display. And really the thing about the book of Corinthians or the church of Corinth is is the fact that it really pictures us as individual Christians on a daily basis. See, if I if I live and I view and act on things and I interpret things and I uh, and discern things in my carnality, then I think like they think I act like they act. And so, you know, hopefully there are a lot of things in our life that we wouldn't take to the extreme that they take it. But if we were to stay in that frame of mind long enough, it would be inevitable that that's where we would end up. Uh, And so Paul is dealing with this problem. And what we see in chapter four is they're beginning to kind of push back uh, at the Apostle Paul. And so we saw uh, that in particular uh, in the first eight verses that we read. And Paul here basically is beginning to respond to their judgment on him and Apollos. And so he gives this uh, response. And we, when we see their pushback, uh, he then responds to their judgment. Now, in verses 9 through 17, we see Paul demonstrating his stewardship. 
And so basically he starts off saying that we're ministers of Christ. And we're going to deal with that very closely in just a moment. Uh, ministers of Christ, that we are stewards of the mysteries of God, uh, that, that we must, if we would be the steward that God would have us to be, then we must be faithful. And then uh, he begins to basically defend his, uh, his apostleship. Now in verse number 9, we'll continue reading there. He says, For I think... That God hath set forth us the apostles last, as it were appointed unto death. For we are made a spectacle unto the world, and to angels, and to men. We are fools for Christ's sake, but ye are wise in Christ. Now, I want you to notice in this passage, when he's saying to them, ye are wise in Christ, ye are strong, we're we? He's not commending them. He, he's not really saying, you're wise if if it was a mother talking to her children, it would be perceived as a guilt trip. I'm, I'm just trying to make a point. And he basically states that uh, in verse 14 when he says, I write not these things to shame you, but as my beloved sons, I warn you. And so keep that in mind as we read down through this text, because what, what it seems to say, if you don't understand the context, it seems like Paul is saying, hey, we're, we are, uh, you know, here, we're last, we're down, we're dumb, we're not wise, uh, but you are. It's not that he is praising them. He is making them aware that they are acting in the flesh and in carnality. And so in verse 10, again, we are fools for Christ's sake, but ye are wise in Christ. We are weak, but ye are strong. Ye are honorable, but we are despised. Even under this present hour, we both hunger and thirst and are naked and are buffeted and have no certain dwelling place and labor working with our own hands, being reviled, we bless, being persecuted, we suffer it, being defamed, we entreat. We are made as a filth of the world and are of the offscouring of all things under this day. I write not these things to shame you, but as my beloved sons, I warn you. For though ye have 10,000 instructors in Christ, ye have, have, have ye not many fathers. For in Christ Jesus I have begotten you through the gospel. Wherefore I beseech you, be followers of me. For this cause I have sent unto you Timotheus, who is my beloved son, and faithful in the Lord, who shall bring you into remembrance of my ways, which, which be in Christ as I teach everywhere in every church. So get the picture here. He's saying to them uh, that uh, you are making these judgments and you're upset that I'm, uh, that I'm setting things in order. I'm dealing with your carnality. You notice he's not dealing with the doctrine at this point. He's dealing with their frame of mind, how they're approaching it. Are they coming at things spiritually or carnally? And he's saying, listen, you've got 10,000 teachers that come in and teach you, but you've only got one father. I have begotten you in Christ. And so Paul's laying this out here and he's saying, he's not saying that he's their father over God. He's trying to make the point that you only have one person who brought you to Jesus. Why are you listening to these 10,000 out here and discarding what I've given you? And for this cause, I'm sending Timothy so that he can express to you 
the truth of where we started and what I've taught you, be ye followers of me. Now, later on, he says, follow me as I follow Christ. We understand the heart of the Apostle Paul here. And so I, I think that sometimes we have to understand you know, when we are in a place where God has worked in our life, let's not get so caught up in, uh, and listening to all the riffraff and the rabble that's out there just spouting off things under the name of Christianity uh, and then forsake or discount what those that, act, that God used to actually bring us to Christ have taught us. Uh, and so Paul lays that out there strongly. Now in verses 18 through 21, he begins to, to, to bring home and exercise his authority. So he responds to their and pushes back against their criticism in the first part of the chapter. Then he demonstrates his faithful stewardship. And then he comes back around and says, so at first he's warning them, follow me. Now he's demonstrating his authority. In verses 18 and following. Now some are puffed up as though I would not come to you. But I will come to you shortly. In other words, some of you think uh, that that you have risen to a place of, uh, of leadership and authority and influence uh, to where you've puffed yourself up and you think that you uh, are going to be able to just do whatever you want without God responding, without me as the apostle responding. Uh, you're, you're puffed up thinking that I'm not going to come. You're puffed up and you're filled with pride thinking that I'm not going to respond. And he's, he's reached out gently, but he says, but I will come to you shortly if the Lord will and will know not the speech of them which are puffed up, but the power. So I'm not going to worry about the, the false things that are being put out there by uh, those that are just full of themselves and want to seek their own agenda, but I'm coming in power. I'm coming in authority for the kingdom of God is not in word, but in power. And notice verse 21. What will ye? What would you rather? What is your preference? Shall I come unto you with a rod or in love and in the spirit of meekness? So Paul's message is this. There are things that are wrong in your living in carnality. And I have to address this issue. I would prefer that you wake up and understand that you need to get your eyes off of the things of this world and the satisfaction of the flesh and focus back on truth and following godly examples and godly teachers and those that have led the way and those that God has used to reach you and get your focus right. And if you think that I'm not going to bother with you, Think again, I'm coming, and when I come, I'm coming in authority and power, and I would rather you correct yourself so that I can come in a spirit of meekness and love. But if you don't, I'm coming with a rod. And so, you know, sometimes <clears throat> pastors have come with a rod first and have uh, and, and we sometimes have allowed, if you've been on the wrong end of that, uh, that, uh, that to make it so that we're not willing to receive any rebuke or correction from anyone. Shame on us if that's our mindset. Shame on those that have abused their power when they have. But their abuse doesn't excuse my carnality. And so Paul's setting things in order. So that's the context here. That, that's the, the, the issues of what God is dealing with. And you say, oh boy, pastor, what are you getting ready to, uh, to, to blast us about? I'm, I'm not anything. I just want us to understand the context. Paul is saying here, I have to be a faithful steward of that which God has entrusted to my care. 
I am a minister of Christ. Now they're accusing him of exceeding his authority, of control, uh, of laying down the law where they want that themselves. All right. So you have to understand that to understand what he's saying here in the first couple of verses. And I think that that'll be clear uh, as we define some terms here. We're going to have to define several terms here. If you notice in your outline, when we get to the points of the message, there, there really are no subpoints today uh, because it's going to take some time to establish the context here and, uh, and define the terms that we're dealing with. Let, let a man in verse one so account of us as of the ministers of Christ. Now, we think of the term minister and we understand that the term minister means servant, but we equate minister in our present age to a pastor, a preacher, someone that's in uh, and would be in full time Christian work of some sort. We would identify them uh, oftentimes as a minister, The the minister, the word minister here comes from the Greek word huperetes, uh, which means literally an under rower. And that's the context here. The, the literal definition is an under rower. Now, what does that mean? Well, Paul's example here is the Roman galleon. It is, it is a picture. They're accusing him of driving. They're accusing him of, uh, of abusing. And he's saying, no, I'm, I'm not that. I am an under rower. So picture the Roman galleon, if you will, for a moment. And what he's saying here, and if, you've, uh, if you understand how they worked in the old uh, Roman warships that had a long, hardened nose uh, that were manned by slaves under the deck, uh, and you would have a slave master there uh, who would have a whip that would stand behind them as they rode. And if they were getting off rhythm uh, with the, the one who was keeping the pace with the drum, then they would whip them, flog them. If one died, they would pull them out and throw another one in uh, and they would get rid of the dead weight and they would give their commands. Uh, and so that was the kind of the, 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 the taskmaster, the one uh, that would enforce things, that would drive things, that would punish things. That's what they're the way that they're viewing the Apostle Paul. Then there's the, the, the man who sits up in the front and beats the drum. And when he uh, beats it at a certain pace or in a certain order, that, that keeps the pace of when they're supposed to row. Sometimes it would be fast. Sometimes it would be slow. Sometimes it would be uh, the, the port side sticks all of their oars in uh, the water and holds them. And the starboard side rows and the, the ship would pivot like it was on a hinge. Uh, and so they, they understood all of those commands. So notice what he's saying here uh, as he gives the example as an under rower, he's saying, listen, I am not the slave master and I am not uh, the, the agenda setter. I am a, but a slave. I'm one of you is the message. And he's demonstrating to them that I see myself not as a slave master, but as a slave. And he endeavored uh, to pull his oar to the master's command in harmony, in cooperation and in fellowship with all those who serve. Paul said, I'm, I'm right here seated next to you pulling my oar. And I am working to pull my oar in harmony with you. I am endeavoring to pull my oar as an example to you. I am not the drum keeper, the pace setter. That's the Holy Spirit. 
That's the Lord Jesus Christ. That's his job. I am not the one that judges you, that whips you, uh, that pushes you. That's God's job. That's not my role. That's not why I'm here. Now, I will, as an apostle, set things that are in error in order at God's direction and according to the word of God. But Paul says here, and understand, let a man so account of us. Let a man judge us. Let a man view us. Let a man interpret us as of the ministers of Christ, as of the under rowers, as of that one who is in the, engaged in the battle with you, that is serving the Lord together with you, that is trying to serve in a way that inspires you, that we might lead you as we follow the direction of the Lord Jesus Christ and his Holy Spirit as they keep the rhythm. So he says... View us as the minister of Christ. And then he says, as of stewards of the mysteries of God. Now, the word steward comes from the word okonomos. Uh, and it means this, one who manages the affairs of his master's household. So it's someone who is the manager of the master's household. And so to us, we have been put, First Thessalonians tells us, in trust with the gospel. What we have been entrusted to, what we have been in charge of, is the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. In other words, uh, when we look at our definition here, we are to manage the affairs of the gospel. We are to manage the affairs of God's working in the heart of man. That is what we are as a steward. And so if a man uh, is, moreover, it is required in stewards that a man be found faithful. Now, the word faithful is a word that we really, truly don't pay a lot of attention to because it's common today. And we equate it to someone that's just where they're supposed to be when they're supposed to be there. Someone that uh, that that keeps their word, someone that uh, <clears throat> is an example that way. And that certainly is true. But the word faithful comes from the word pistos, which means objectively one who is trustworthy. And so if I would be faithful, then I must be trustworthy or worthy of trust. In other words, I deal with things, I live in a way, I do conduct business in a way, uh, I perform my, my task in a way that, that causes someone who observes with, the, with a legitimate spiritual mind as one who is worthy of the trust that has been given. So what, what's Paul saying here? He's saying, listen, you want to condemn me but the reality is, is that I am a, I'm a minister of Christ and I have been a, made a steward of the gospel and I want to be a faithful steward. I am one who is worthy of the trust that God has placed in me. And so, but the word also means subjectively trustful. So when we look at the word faithful, we're not just considering in this context its application uh, to me as the one who is uh, is being worthy of the trust, but I am trustful. In other words, that I have trust in the master. And so it plays out this way. A steward must be worthy of his master's trust and must fully trust his master. Now, this is a little bit deeper way of looking at this, perhaps, and we would just kind of casually ramble through it in a message most times. Uh, but I really want us to get this, this point. I'm going to say that again, and then I'm going to rephrase it. A steward must be worthy of his master's trust and must fully trust his master. 
If you look at Joseph, if you look at other examples in the scripture, you see uh, a man who was put in charge of his master's estate and he trusted his master as his master trusted him. I would say it this way, as a disciple, a disciple slash steward, we are disciples, but we are stewards. You can't separate the two. I must live worthy of the trust that Jesus has placed in me as I fully trust his leading my life by his word through the spirit. I'm going to say that again. As a disciple steward, I must live worthy of the trust that Jesus has placed in me as I fully trust his leading my life by his word through his spirit. See, they're not trusting the spirit. They're trusting their flesh. They're carnal. And listen, no faithful steward like the Apostle Paul is ever going to be recognized as a rightful, godly, spiritual leader. And the people rejoice in his leading and his praise and his rebuke uh, as he guides them if they are viewing themselves as the Corinthian church was and in a state of carnality. See, a state of carnality causes me to resist correction. It causes me to judge the one who's making the judgment or who is uh, conveying the information, whoever's responsibility that becomes. We want to pick them apart and, and figure out all the ways that they're not worthy to make this criticism of me, uh, to deal with this issue in me. Uh, how dare the pastor preach that, say that, say this? How dare another brother, sister in Christ uh, correct me about this or say this to me or do this to me or whatever? Shame on them. And, and if you find yourself in the frame of mind where you're offended by almost everything and you defend yourself and, and play the victim in almost everything, then I can assure you on the authority of biblical example that you're nothing more than a carnal Christian that cares about nothing in the gospel but yourself. You cloak it in spirituality, you cloak it in prayer, you cloak it, cloak it in religiosity, and you justify it by the failures of leadership in the past rather than owning your own responsibility before God and waking up out of your carnality and living righteously before the Lord Jesus Christ. See, if I'm a faithful steward, then I must walk worthy. If I would be faithful, I must find him worthy and listen to what he says to me and follow him as he leads. Now, we're not done with this concept of worthy here. Uh, we're going to look at this a little bit more. We are to be worthy. The word worthy here. Uh, comes from the Greek word axios, which means as becometh after a godly sort. So if I would be worthy, then that means I am becoming a godly sort. Notice that it didn't say I have become a godly sort. I am becoming. Every Christian, even an infant Christian, can be a worthy Christian. There, there's no benchmark that has to be reached in order for me to come to place where I suddenly become worthy. Worthy is, am I humble? Am I surrendered? Am I obedient to the gospel? Am I becoming a godly sort? It means that I'm deserving. It means that comparable and suitable. So it means that 
comparative to where my age is in Christ. See, the carnal wants to look at and judge everything by the outside manifestation of things. But God looks on the heart. God is not judging the outer man. God is looking at the inner man. God, and I'll just tell you very, very plainly, and I say this from time to time, that you could stand, I could stand 10 people up here and have one at this end be the epitome of what everyone thinks a completely sold out, devoted Christian example should be. And someone on the other end that just got saved that you would look at and, and think, uh, I, I'm not even really sure that they're a Christian and that man be a far more godly man than that one uh, because it's not about the window dressing. It's about the attitude and the direction of the heart. And so when we talk about worthy, we're talking about what am I becoming? Am I growing? Is my heart desirous? That comes from the root word ago, which means to lead or to bring forth. So in other words, if I would walk worthy, I must be becoming godly as I am brought forth from where I was. So if I am moving in the right direction, how far I am on the journey does not determine my worthiness, but rather am I moving in the right direction? Am I living and thinking carnally or am I living and thinking and acting in the spirit? So we could say it this way. To walk worthy will manifest itself differently at different stages of growth, but the constant will be one's worthiness. As we are becoming like Christ, we are bringing others with us. As we are brought forth, we are bringing forth. See, a true servant of God will bring forth as we are being brought forth. See, the Holy Spirit of God will be bringing us forth, will be making us godly, will be developing us along the way. And if I am a true, faithful steward of what God has entrusted to me, then I will also be bringing others with me. So when we look here again, let, us so, let a man, again, in the context that he's responding to this criticism, let a man so account of us as of the stewards of the mysteries of God, Moreover, it is required in stewards that a man be found faithful. And so Paul is, com is commending them to become faithful. He is demonstrating that though their attacks are based on carnality, his life, his leadership, his guidance has been driven by faithfulness. So if I would be faithful in my stewardship... If I would be a true disciple of the Lord Jesus Christ, then I would be one who is realizing, first of all, that they are not their own. Say, Pastor, how do I how do I set this in order in my own life? Well, it starts with realizing that you're not your own. The problem with carnality is, is that we think that life is ours. We we think that that we're owed. We we feel entitled. I'm a Christian, so I'm entitled to heaven. I'm a Christian, so I'm entitled to answered prayer. I'm a Christian, so I'm entitled to God's power. No, we're not entitled to anything. We have an opportunity to humble ourselves before God and to allow God to work in our heart. So if I would wake up from my carnality and I would become 
a faithful steward of what God has given me, then I would become one that is worthy of what's been entrusted to my care. I will fully trust the Lord. Listen, uh, fully trusting him means that sometimes the master is going to come to me as I manage his affairs and say, I want you to do this or I want you to do it this way. And I'm going to think, I don't understand. If we do it that way, it's going to be the end of us. I don't understand. If we do it that way, it's not going to be productive. I don't understand. If I do it that way, it just doesn't make sense to anybody. God doesn't care if it makes sense to the world. God cares. Am I going to trust him? He's entrusted us. Are we going to trust him? Because I promise you there are going to be times if we trust God that he's going to put something on us, put something in our heart to do that is going to make sense to no one. Will we reconcile it with carnality and with a carnal mind or will we just trust God and do what he tells us to do? So a true disciple and a faithful steward is one who will realize that they're not their own. First Corinthians chapter number six and verse 19 and 20 says, what know ye not that your body is the temple of the Holy Ghost, which is in you, which ye have of God and ye are not your own for ye are bought with a price. Therefore, glorify God in your body and in your spirit, which are God's. See, when I start thinking that my life is mine, when I start thinking that my house is mine, when I start thinking that my bank account is mine, when I start thinking that my children are mine, when I start thinking that my retirement account is mine, I'm thinking carnally and I'm in trouble. None of it's mine. It's all his. I am simply entrusted with it to bring honor and glory to him as I manage the the mysteries of the gospel. As we collectively manage what God has called us to do, not as a church, not as a pastor, but as a Christian, as one who's placed their faith and trust in him. And in 1 Corinthians chapter number 7, in verse 23 and 24, it says, ye are bought with a price. Be not ye the servants of men. Brethren, let every man wherein he is called therein abide with God. So he's not saying here, you're bought with a price, do not be not the servants of men. He's not saying, you've been bought with a price, so don't go work a secular job. You're bought with a price, so don't buy a house. You're bought with a price, so don't invest in retirement. You're, you're bought with a price, so don't uh, leave anything behind. No, all of those things are biblical principles that are that are blessings from God and that we are uh, actually encouraged to do. It's the mindset. Am I viewing it carnally or am I viewing it spiritually? Am I using what I have been entrusted to bring glory to God or to serve my flesh? And you can cloak a whole lot of flesh service in Christian clothing and in Christian service. There are a lot of pastors that care more about about uh, about self-elevation than they do about stewarding the mysteries of God. And when we look here, ye are bought with a price, be ye not servants of men. Brethren, let every man wherein he is called therein abide with God. Abide with God in your home. Abide with God on your job. Abide with God in your marriage. Abide with God in your parenting. Abide with God in your interpersonal relationships. But wherever you go and whatever you do, abide with God. Where God has called you, where God has led you, where God has has brought you, abide with him. So I would say this, realize that that we are not our own. I am bought 
Therefore, everything that is mine is my master's. He bought me twice. He bought me when he created me and he bought me again when he saved my soul. I'm twice bought. Nothing that I have belongs to me. Now, listen, why is that important, Pastor? Because it changes our outlook on everything. Whenever there's a need that arises, maybe it's a, a brother or sister in Christ that has an emergency, a financial crisis. Maybe it's a, uh, it is a, 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 a building improve, or an improvement project at, uh, at the place of worship. Maybe it is a, uh, the purchase of a, a, of a bus or a vehicle or something along those lines that require more uh, than what is just normal week-to-week budgeted expenses. Uh, and we set forth, hey, here's a need. Then what that does is it doesn't cause us to grab hold of our wallet and close it up and say, well, I've already given what God requires. The rest is mine. It opens us up realizing that nothing that I have is mine. Holy Spirit, would you lead me? Holy Spirit, would you beat the drum to the pace that you want me to row? Would you be in charge? I yield myself to you. I will open my heart and ask the question, God, what would you have me to do? And by the way, when it comes to matters of uh, that are financial in particular, I, I, I don't believe that I could argue this morning biblically that if I as a pastor present a need and everyone in the church opens their heart and prays, God, what would you have me do? That it's necessarily the will of God to respond to every need that's presented. There may be a need for an individual person that comes up and we present the need and maybe 10 people is who God lays it on their heart to help, but it meets the need. There are other things that are certainly that are bigger that all of us ought to be in, participate in. But my goal as a pastor is to just get us to the point where whenever things like that come up, whether it be uh, just, just needs that are around, I mean, obvious things, not just financial things, not looking for a way out of service, but looking to meet needs and serve where there's a need. Whether it be in the nursery, whether it be in the choir, whether it be uh, whether it be in the parking lot, whether it be uh, throughout the week, hey, where is there a need? Praise God for Brother Sandy. Brother Sandy comes four days a week for a couple hours a day and just does whatever he can do around the church to be helpful and be a blessing. Praise the Lord for that. And he doesn't do it. He has no expectation that I'm going to say anything or pat him on the back. He's probably embarrassed that I did. But the fact of the matter is, is that he looks around and sees, hey, there's some things that are necessary that are needed that I can help with. I want to make myself available. It's a cry and shame when we have to make a plea for things that are obvious. If we were thinking spiritually instead of carnally, we wouldn't look for a way to dive out of our responsibilities. We would be looking for a way to meet things that are needed in the church, in the ministry. And so when we look here, we consider, hey, it's not mine. When I realize that it's not mine and I can trust God with it, uh, it's liberating. I'm not clinging to everything that I have thinking, oh, how am I going to make this up if something else goes wrong? Uh, no, I'm just trusting the master. So a faithful disciple, a true disciple, a faithful steward is one who realizes that they're not their own. Secondly, a faithful steward will then realign their interpretation of life. To realign our interpretation of life. In other words, we begin to think of our life in terms of its call from God. 
when I was thinking about this and praying this through and, and, and studying this out, what came to mind was Acts chapter 9. Because Acts chapter 9 is a fundamental shift in the life of the Apostle Paul. At the beginning of the chapter, he is Saul. At the end of the chapter, he is Paul. At the beginning of the chapter, he is persecuting those who preach Christ. By the end of the chapter, he's preaching Christ. At the beginning of the chapter, he is chasing people out of their cities. At the end of the chapter, he's being let down through a hole in the wall in a basket so that he can escape. There's a fundamental change in the way that he thinks. And I don't want to get too much into that because it's coming on Sunday nights fairly soon. We'll begin chapter 8 tonight. But what I'm saying here is this, that if I would be a faithful steward of what God has given me to do and what God has entrusted to my care, then I must realign my interpretation of life to where I'm not serving what seems obvious on the outside, but I am pursuing a deep personal relationship with Christ. Will I pursue my own agenda or will I act in the interest of my master? And say that again. Will I pursue my own agenda? See, there are a lot of people that serve the Lord in church that are just simply pursuing their own agenda. Or will I act in the best interest of my master? Remember, it's not mine. And as a steward, I am one who has been entrusted with the care of that which belongs to someone else. Will I use that power? Will I use that responsibility? Will I use the resources of my master to pursue my own agenda or his? See, it's my responsibility to invest his resources in his agenda. It is not my place to go against the one who has entrusted it to me. Listen, we are ambassadors. 1 Corinthians 5 tells us that. We are ambassadors of Christ. The ambassador, an ambassador has no right to voice to a foreign body their disagreement of the policy of the president that they represent. They have no right. They may have a right to think differently, but they do not have a right to voice in an official capacity their opposition to a policy because they are not there to represent themselves. They are there to represent their government. And it's the same principle here. We do not live to represent self. We live to represent the king. And when I understand that, when I become a steward of that, when my mindset goes from carnality to spirituality, when I humble myself before him, when I grab hold of my oar and put down my hammer or my whip, then I become a much more effective servant of the Lord Jesus Christ. When I allow him to be the one that sets the pace, when I let him to be the one that decides the agenda, will I pursue my own agenda or will I act in the interest of my master? Thirdly, we consider this. A true disciple will recommit their devotion. See, before I was committed to my own idea, before I was committed to my own agenda, before I was committed to my own authority or to my own uh, position of prestige, uh, but uh, what I must become is someone who has recommitted my devotion to the master. Am I devoted this morning to me or am I devoted this morning to him? 
See, a true minister, a true steward in faithfulness cannot be, de- cannot be devoted to self. They must be devoted to the, to the master. Romans chapter 12, in the first three verses, he says, I beseech you, therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, that ye present your bodies a living sacrifice, holy, acceptable unto God. There's that worthiness, which is your reasonable service. And be not conformed to this world, but be ye transformed by the renewing of your mind, that ye may prove what is that good and acceptable and perfect will of God. For I say, through the grace given unto me, to every man that is among you, not to think of himself more highly than he ought to think, but to think soberly, according as God hath dealt to every man the measure of faith. See, the problem with the church of Corinth is that they are puffed up and they think more of themselves than they ought to think. They are not yielded a living sacrifice to God. They simply want to take the benefits of their Christian life and use it to, to, to uh, profit in their own agenda. They are committed still to self, not to him. No one who is committed to self can be committed to Christ. No one that is committed to self can be worthy of being a faithful steward. If I would be a true disciple, I must realize that I'm not my own. I must realign my own interpretation of life to match that of the Holy Spirit and what's given in Scripture. I must recommit my devotion to the Lord Jesus Christ. I renounce my own agenda, my own authority, my own will, and I embrace his. Because I'm not, it's not mine. I represent him. Fourthly, would say this. That a true disciple will then reinvest their master's resources. See, someone that's living carnally as the church at Corinth was investing, they were investing the master's resources for their own gain. When I come to a place where I realize I'm not my own, where I've reinterpreted my life, where I've recommitted my devotion, then I will then reinvest my master's resources. What resources, Pastor? Well, resources are everything that we have. Literally. It's life. My life is not mine, it's his. It's family. My family is not mine. It's his. It's my possessions. They're not mine. They're his. It's our money. It's not mine. It's his. It's all his. And it's to be used for him. Everything in every Christian's life should be used for the glory of God. So the simple thing this morning as we close out and we look at this is this. Will I choose to be a faithful steward and a true disciple of Jesus? Or will I choose to be a faithful steward of self? Will I choose to remain in my carnality? Or will I choose to surrender myself and follow him faithfully? Will I choose? So, Pastor, how does that look practically? Well, practically, it, it looks like this. Will I, will I choose to allow myself to be inconvenienced? For the cause of Christ. Will I allow myself to be inconvenienced to pick someone up or to take them home who otherwise couldn't be here? Will I allow myself to be inconvenienced by participating in the choir? It's becoming a little bit of a problem, especially with the men. We get way too comf- too much of, of, uh, of, of not wanting to participate and not enough. Listen, we need you guys. 
It's about Saturday whenever 1030 rolls around or 10 o'clock and it's time to go and invite people to church and to canvas for services that are coming up. And there's uh, not nearly the amount of people that used to show up show up now as, as did a, a year ago. So what's the trend, Pastor? The trend is that I think uh, that we've just we've come out of Harvard. We got comfortable again. There's a good spirit. So we've gotten comfortable again. Oh, I don't have to be inconvenienced with that. Are we as generous financially as we once were? Are we willing to open our hearts and meet a need? Are, are we looking for excuses to not do as opposed to a reason to commit ourselves to something? So, Pastor, you all aggravated me. Not at all. I'm just, I'm really, God got a hold of my heart this week because I'm thinking, and I've got to stay on discipleship and I've got to get on stewardship. And Lord, would you show me? And it just, as I started breaking words down and defining them and started looking for practical application in my life, uh, it's about everything. Every area. You know, it ought not. It ought, listen, I understand that, that we're not going to typically live in a world where we sacrifice every minute of our downtime uh, to go and help somebody do this or do that. But why is it such a tragedy if, if once in a great while we have to sacrifice a day off to help a brother or sister in Christ or to meet a need? Why is it the end of the world to have to go out of our way to give someone a ride? Have we, have we really gotten so self-focused and carnal-minded that all we can do is pick apart and look at fault rather than look for reasons to serve? I'm just saying this morning, as a, as a Christian, I want to be a faithful steward of what God's trusted to me. I want to be a true disciple, not just a, a pretend disciple. I, I don't want to be a member of a church that's a disciple-making church and trying to establish a disciple-making culture uh, and, and just learn all of the catchphrases and uh, learn all of the agenda and learn all of the things that we're doing. I want to become a disciple. I want to become one who is becoming like my Savior. And when we look and when we interpret and when we make application, you know, it's all great whenever the pastor just presents the truth, but when we start making a legitimate, personal, practical application that impacts our daily lives, suddenly all of us, everybody withdraws. Some of you are getting a little uncomfortable. We ought to be rejoicing. We have been entrusted with his gospel, we must rise to the occasion and be faithful stewards. We must do the things that God has given us the ability to do. Listen, if you, every one of us have different talents and abilities, and if any one of us is not using that talent and ability to do what we can do for God, shame on us. Amen. Why? Because there's a whole world out there that's dying and going to hell. And there's a whole lot of people in here uh, that are just trying to get their footing that need some inspiration. And we need to rise to the occasion and glorify the Savior. We need to get off of the drum podium and stop trying to set the agenda. See, the drum tells them whether they're going into battle. The drum tells them whether they're taking it easy. The drum tells them if they're turning to the starboard or to the port. The drum tells them if they need to pivot. The drum tells them if they're about to get rammed. And the difference between us and the Roman galleon is that we're not chained to our oar. 
We have to choose to be there. And it's high time that a host of us decided that we were going to let go of the hammer and stop trying to set the agenda. And we were going to drop the whip and stop criticizing everybody around us. And we were just going to take a bench at the, at the oar and row to the master's pace. Yeah. <clears throat> it's amazing how much things change and how much God blesses and how much Jesus is honored when we just simply become a faithful steward of what God has entrusted to our care. Listen, the Apostle Paul comes and he, he's, he's laying it out there. I mean, he gets pretty blunt. I think I could make a pretty strong case that he gets pretty sarcastic here too. I know we, we kind of loathe the sarcasm, but I mean, we are fools for Christ's sake, but you're wise in Christ. He said, listen, I'm not trying to shame you. I'm giving you a warning. I write not these things to shame you, but as my beloved sons, I warn you. I want to come, and I want to come in love, and I want to come in meekness. But if I have to come with a rod, either way I'm coming. Will we live carnally, or will we live spiritually? Will we live as faithful servants, faithful stewards, faithful ministers of him or of self? That's our choice this morning.